Section 6 of Essays on Political Economy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Political Economy by Frederic Bastiat. Section 6. 7. Restrictions. M. Prohibent, it was not I who gave him this name, but M. Charles Dupin, devoted his time and capital to converting the ore found on his land into iron. As nature had been more lavish towards the Belgians, they furnished the French with iron cheaper than M. Prohibent, which means that all the French, or France, could obtain a given quantity of iron with less labor by buying it from the honest Flemings. Therefore, guided by their own interest, they did not fail to do so, and every day there might be seen a multitude of nailsmiths, blacksmiths, cartwrights, machinists, farriers, and laborers, going themselves, or sending intermediates, to supply themselves in Belgium. This displeased M. Prohibent exceedingly. At first it occurred to him to put an end to this abuse by his own efforts. It was the least he could do, for he was the only sufferer. "'I will take my carbine,' said he. "'I will put four pistols into my belt. I will fill my cartridge-box. I will gird on my sword, and go thus equipped to the frontier. There, the first blacksmith, nailsmith, farrier, machinist, or locksmith, who presents himself to do his own business, and not mine, I will kill, to teach him how to live.' At the moment of starting, M. Prohibent made a few reflections which calmed down his warlike ardor a little. He said to himself, In the first place, it is not absolutely impossible that the purchasers of iron, my countrymen and enemies, should take the thing ill, and, instead of letting me kill them, should kill me instead. And then, even were I to call out all my servants, we should not be able to defend the passages. In short, this proceeding would cost me very dear, much more so than the result would be worth. M. Prohibent was on the point of resigning himself to his sad fate, that of being only as free as the rest of the world, when a ray of light darted across his brain. He recollected that at Paris there is a great manufactory of laws. What is a law? said he to himself. It is a measure, to which, when once it is decreed, be it good or bad, everybody is bound to conform. For the execution of the same, a public force is organized, and to constitute the said public force, men and money are drawn from the whole nation. If, then, I could only get the great Parisian manufactory to pass a little law, Belgian iron is prohibited. I should obtain the following results. The government would replace the few valets that I was going to send to the frontier by twenty thousand of the sons of those refractory blacksmiths, farriers, artisans, machinists, locksmiths, nailsmiths, and laborers. Then to keep these twenty thousand custom-house officers in health and good humor, it would distribute among them twenty-five millions of francs taken from these blacksmiths, nailsmiths, artisans, and laborers. They would guard the frontier much better, would cost me nothing. I should not be exposed to the brutality of the brokers. 
should sell the iron at my own price, and have the sweet satisfaction of seeing our great people shamefully mystified. That would teach them to proclaim themselves perpetually the harbingers and promoters of progress in Europe. Oh, it would be a capital joke, and deserves to be tried. So M. Prohibent went to the law manufactory. Another time, perhaps, I shall relate the story of his underhand dealings, but now I shall merely mention his visible proceedings. He brought the following consideration before the view of the legislating gentleman. Belgian iron is sold in France at ten francs, which obliges me to sell mine at the same price. I should like to sell at fifteen, but cannot do so on account of this Belgian iron, which I wish was at the bottom of the Red Sea. I beg you will make a law that no more Belgian iron shall enter France. Immediately I raise my price five francs, and these are the consequences. For every hundred weight of iron that I shall deliver to the public, I shall receive fifteen francs instead of ten. I shall grow rich more rapidly, extend my traffic, and employ more workmen. My workmen and I shall spend much more freely, to the great advantage of our tradesmen for miles around. These latter, having more custom, will furnish more employment to trade, and activity on both sides will increase in the country. This fortunate piece of money, which you will drop into my strong-box, will, like a stone thrown into a lake, give birth to an infinite number of concentric circles. Charmed with his discourse, delighted to learn that it is so easy to promote, by legislating, the prosperity of a people, the lawmakers voted the restriction. Talk of labor and economy, they said. What is the use of these painful means of increasing the national wealth, when all that is wanted, for this object, is a decree? And, in fact, the law produced all the consequences announced by M. Prohibent. The only thing was, it produced others, which he had not foreseen. To do him justice, his reasoning was not false, but only incomplete. In endeavouring to obtain a privilege, he had taken cognizance of the effects which are seen, leaving in the background those which are not seen. He had pointed out only two personages, whereas there are three concerned in the affair. It is for us to supply this involuntary or premeditated omission. It is true, the crown piece, thus directed by law into M. Prohibent's strong-box, is advantageous to him and to those whose labor it would encourage. And if the act had caused the crown-piece to descend from the moon, these good effects would not have been counterbalanced by any corresponding evils. Unfortunately, the mysterious piece of money does not come from the moon, but from the pocket of a blacksmith, or a nailsmith, or a cartwright, or a farrier, or a laborer, or a shipwright. In a word, from James B., who gives it now, without receiving a grain more of iron than when he was paying ten francs. Thus we can see at a glance that this very much alters the state of the case, for it is very evident that M. Prohibent's profit is compensated by James B.'s loss, and all that M. Prohibent can do with the crown piece for the encouragement of national labor, James B. might have done himself. The stone has only been thrown upon one part of the lake, because the law has prevented it from
from being thrown upon another. Therefore, that which is not seen supersedes that which is seen, and at this point there remains, as the residue of the operation, a piece of injustice, and, sad to say, a piece of injustice perpetrated by the law. This is not all. I have said that there is always a third person left in the background. I must now bring him forward, that he may reveal to us a second loss of five francs. Then we shall have the entire results of the transaction. James B. is the possessor of fifteen francs, the fruit of his labor. He is now free. What does he do with his fifteen francs? He purchases some article of fashion for ten francs, and with it he pays, or the intermediate pay for him, for the hundredweight of Belgian iron. After this he has five francs left. He does not throw them into the river, but, and this is what is not seen, he gives them to some tradesman in exchange for some enjoyment, to a bookseller, for instance, for Bossuet's Discourse on Universal History. Thus, as far as national labor is concerned, it is encouraged to the amount of fifteen francs, viz. ten francs for the Paris article, five francs to the bookselling trade. As to James B., he obtains for his fifteen francs two gratifications, viz. first, a hundred weight of iron, second, a book. The decree is put in force. How does it affect the condition of James B.? How does it affect national labor? James B. pays every centime of his five francs to M. Prohibent, and therefore is deprived of the pleasure of a book, or of some other thing of equal value. He loses five francs. This must be admitted, it cannot fail to be admitted, that when the restriction raises the price of things, the consumer loses the difference. But, then, it is said, national labor is the gainer. No, it is not the gainer, for since the act, it is no more encouraged than it was before, to the amount of fifteen francs. The only thing is that, since the act, the fifteen francs of James B. go to the metal trade, while before it was put in force, they were divided between the milliner and the bookseller. The violence used by M. Prohibent on the frontier, or that which he causes to be used by the law, may be judged very differently in a moral point of view. Some persons consider that plunder is perfectly justifiable, if only sanctioned by law. But, for myself, I cannot imagine anything more aggravating. However it may be, the economical results are the same in both cases. Look at the thing as you will, but if you are impartial, you will see that no good can come of legal or illegal plunder. We do not deny that it affords M. Prohibent, or his trade, or, if you will, national industry, a profit of five francs. But we affirm that it causes two losses, one to James B., who pays fifteen francs, where he otherwise would have paid ten, the other to national industry, which does not receive the difference. 
take your choice of these two losses, and compensate with it the profit which we allow. The other will prove not the less a dead loss. Here is the moral. To take by violence is not to produce, but to destroy. Truly, if taking by violence was producing, this country of ours would be a little richer than she is. 8. Machinery A curse on machines. Every year their increasing power devotes millions of workmen to pauperism, by depriving them of work, and therefore of wages and bread. A curse on machines. This is the cry which is raised by vulgar prejudice, and echoed in the journals. But to curse machines is to curse the spirit of humanity. It puzzles me to conceive how any man can feel any satisfaction in such a doctrine. For, if true, what is its inevitable consequence? That there is no activity, prosperity, wealth, or happiness possible for any people, except for those who are stupid and inert, and to whom God has not granted the fatal gift of knowing how to think, to observe, to combine, to invent, and to obtain the greatest results with the smallest means. On the contrary, rags, mean huts, poverty, and inanition are the inevitable lot of every nation which seeks and finds in iron, fire, wind, electricity, magnetism, the laws of chemistry and mechanics, in a word, in the powers of nature, an assistance to its natural powers. We might as well say with Rousseau, every man that thinks is a depraved animal. This is not all. If this doctrine is true, since all men think and invent, since all, from first to last, and at every moment of their existence, seek the cooperation of the powers of nature, and try to make the most of a little, by reducing either the work of their hands or their expenses, so as to obtain the greatest possible amount of gratification with the smallest possible amount of labor, it must follow, as a matter of course, that the whole of mankind is rushing towards its decline, by the same mental aspiration towards progress, which torments each of its members. Hence it ought to be made known, by statistics, that the inhabitants of Lancashire, abandoning that land of machines, seek for work in Ireland, where they are unknown, and by history, that barbarism darkens the epochs of civilization, and that civilization shines in times of ignorance and barbarism. There is evidently in this mass of contradictions something which revolts us, and which leads us to suspect that the problem contains within it an element of solution which has not been sufficiently disengaged. Here is the whole mystery. Behind that which is seen lies something which is not seen. I will endeavor to bring it to light. The demonstration I shall give will only be a repetition of the preceding one, for the problems are one and the same. Men have a natural propensity to make the best bargain they can, when not prevented by an opposing force. That is, they like to obtain as much as they possibly can for their labor, whether the advantage is obtained from a foreign producer or a skillful mechanical producer. 
the theoretical objection which is made to this propensity is the same in both cases in each case it is reproached with the apparent inactivity which it causes to labor now labor rendered available not inactive is the very thing which determines it and therefore in both cases the same practical obstacle force is opposed to it also the legislator prohibits foreign competition and forbids mechanical competition for what other means can exist for arresting a propensity which is natural to all men but that of depriving them of their liberty in many countries it is true the legislator strikes at only one of these competitions and confines himself to grumbling at the other this only proves one thing that is that the legislator is inconsistent we need not be surprised at this on a wrong road inconsistency is inevitable if it were not so mankind would be sacrificed a false principle never has been and never will be carried out to the end now for our demonstration which shall not be a long one james b had two francs which he had gained by two workmen but it occurs to him that an arrangement of ropes and weights might be made which would diminish the labor by half therefore he obtains the same advantage saves a franc and discharges a workman he discharges a workman this is that which is seen and seeing this only it is said see how misery attends civilization this is the way that liberty is fatal to equality the human mind has made a conquest and immediately a workman is cast into the gulf of pauperism james b may possibly employ the two workmen but then he will give them only half their wages for they will compete with each other and offer themselves at the lowest price thus the rich are always growing richer and the poor poorer society wants remodeling a very fine conclusion and worthy of the preamble happily preamble and conclusion are both false because behind the half of the phenomenon which is seen lies the other half which is not seen the frank saved by james b is not seen no more are the necessary effects of this saving since in consequence of his invention james b spends only one franc on hand labor in the pursuit of a determined advantage another franc remains to him if then there is in the world a workman with unemployed arms there is also in the world a capitalist with an unemployed franc these two elements meet and combine and it is as clear as daylight that between the supply and demand of labor and between the supply and demand of wages the relation is in no way changed the invention and the workman paid with the first franc now perform the work which was formerly accomplished by two workmen the second workman paid with the second franc realizes a new kind of work what is the change then which has taken place an additional national advantage has been gained in other words the invention is a gratuitous triumph a gratuitous profit for mankind from the form which i have given to my demonstration the following inference might be drawn 
It is the capitalist who reaps all the advantage from machinery. The working class, if it suffers only temporarily, never profits by it, since, by your own showing, they displace a portion of the national labor, without diminishing it, it is true, but also without increasing it. I do not pretend, in this slight treatise, to answer every objection. The only end I have in view is to combat a vulgar, widely spread, and dangerous prejudice. I want to prove that a new machine only causes the discharge of a certain number of hands, when the remuneration which pays them is abstracted by force. These hands and this remuneration would combine to produce what it was impossible to produce before the invention, whence it follows that the final result is an increase of advantages for equal labor. Who is the gainer by these additional advantages? First, it is true, the capitalist, the inventor, the first who succeeds in using the machine. And this is the reward of his genius and courage. In this case, as we have just seen, he effects a saving upon the expense of production, which, in whatever way it may be spent, and it always is spent, employs exactly as many hands as the machine caused to be dismissed. But soon competition obliges him to lower his prices in proportion to the saving itself. And then it is no longer the inventor who reaps the benefit of the invention. It is the purchaser of what is produced, the consumer, the public, including the workmen, in a word, mankind. And that which is not seen is that the saving thus procured for all consumers creates a fund whence wages may be supplied, and which replaces that which the machine has exhausted. Thus, to recur to the forementioned example, James B. obtains a profit by spending two francs in wages. Thanks to his invention, the hand labor costs him only one franc. So long as he sells the thing produced at the same price, he employs one workman less in producing this particular thing. And that is what is seen. But there is an additional workman employed by the franc which James B. has saved. This is that which is not seen. When, by the natural progress of things, James B. is obliged to lower the price of the thing produced by one franc, then he no longer realizes a saving. Then he has no longer a franc to dispose of, to procure for the national labor a new production. But then another gainer takes his place, and this gainer is mankind. Whoever buys the thing he has produced, pays a franc less, and necessarily adds this saving to the fund of wages. And this, again, is what is not seen. Another solution, founded upon facts, has been given of this problem of machinery. It was said, machinery reduces the expense of production, and lowers the price of the thing produced. The reduction of the profit causes an increase of consumption, which necessitates an increase of production, and, finally, the introduction of as many workmen, or more, after the invention, as were necessary before it. As a proof of this, printing, weaving, etc., are instanced. 
this demonstration is not a scientific one. It would lead us to conclude that, if the consumption of the particular production of which we are speaking remains stationary, or nearly so, machinery must injure labor. This is not the case. Suppose that in a certain country all the people wore hats. If, by machinery, the price could be reduced half, it would not necessarily follow that the consumption would be doubled. Would you say that in this case a portion of the national labor had been paralyzed? Yes, according to the vulgar demonstration. But, according to mine, no. For even if not a single hat more should be bought in the country, the entire fund of wages would not be the less secure. That which failed to go to the hat-making trade would be found to have gone to the economy realized by all the consumers, and would thence serve to pay for all the labor which the machine had rendered useless, and to excite a new development of all the trades. And thus it is that things go on. I have known newspapers to cost eighty francs. Now we pay forty-eight. Here is a saving of thirty-two francs to the subscribers. It is not certain, or at least necessary, that the thirty-two francs should take the direction of the journalist trade. But it is certain, and necessary too, that if they do not take this direction, they will take another. One makes use of them for taking in more newspapers another to get better living, another better clothes, another better furniture. It is thus that the trades are bound together. They form a vast whole, whose different parts communicate by secret canals. What is saved by one profits all. It is very important for us to understand that savings never take place at the expense of labor and wages. nine credit in all times but more especially of late years attempts have been made to extend wealth by the extension of credit i believe it is no exaggeration to say that since the revolution of february the parisian presses have issued more than ten thousand pamphlets crying up this solution of the social problem the only basis alas of this solution is an optical delusion, if, indeed, an optical delusion can be called a basis at all. The first thing done is to confuse cash with produce, then paper money with cash, and from these two confusions it is pretended that a reality can be drawn. It is absolutely necessary in this question to forget money, coin, bills, and other instruments by means of which productions pass from hand to hand. Our business is with the productions themselves, which are the real objects of the loan. For when a farmer borrows fifty francs to buy a plough, it is not, in reality, the fifty francs which are lent to him, but the plough. And when a merchant borrows twenty thousand francs to purchase a house, it is not the twenty thousand francs which he owes, but the house money only appears for the sake of facilitating the arrangements between the parties. Peter may not be disposed to lend his plough, but James may be willing to lend his money. What does William do in this case? He borrows money of James, 
and with this money he buys the plough of Peter. But, in point of fact, no one borrows money for the sake of money itself. Money is only the medium by which to obtain possession of productions. Now, it is impossible in any country to transmit from one person to another more productions than that country contains. Whatever may be the amount of cash and of paper which is in circulation, the whole of the borrowers cannot receive more ploughs, houses, tools, and supplies of raw material than the lenders altogether can furnish. For we must take care not to forget that every borrower supposes a lender, and that what is once borrowed implies a loan. This granted, what advantage is there in institutions of credit? It is that they facilitate, between borrowers and lenders, the means of finding and treating with each other. But it is not in their power to cause an instantaneous increase of the things to be borrowed and lent, and yet they ought to be able to do so, if the aim of the reformers is to be attained, since they aspire to nothing less than to place ploughs, houses, tools, and provisions in the hands of all those who desire them. And how do they intend to effect this? By making the state security for the loan. Let us try and fathom the subject, for it contains something which is seen, and also something which is not seen. We must endeavor to look at both. We will suppose that there is but one plough in the world, and that two farmers apply for it. Peter is the possessor of the only plough which is to be had in France. John and James wish to borrow it. John, by his honesty, his property, and good reputation, offers security. He inspires confidence. He has credit. James inspires little or no confidence. It naturally happens that Peter lends his plough to John. But now, according to the socialist plan, the state interferes, and says to Peter, Lend your plough to James. I will be security for its return, and this security will be better than that of John, for he has no one to be responsible for him but himself, and I, although it is true that I have nothing, dispose of the fortune of the taxpayers, and it is with their money that, in case of need, I shall pay you the principal and interest. Consequently, Peter lends his plough to James. This is what is seen. And the socialists rub their hands, and say, See how well our plan has answered. Thanks to the intervention of the state, poor James has a plough. He will no longer be obliged to dig the ground. He is on the road to make a fortune. It is a good thing for him, and an advantage to the nation as a whole. Indeed, it is no such thing. It is no advantage to the nation. For there is something behind, which is not seen. It is not seen that the plough is in the hands of James, only because it is not in those of John. It is not seen that if James farms instead of digging, John will be reduced to the necessity of digging instead of farming. That, consequently, what was considered an increase of loan is nothing but a displacement of loan. Besides, it is not seen that this displacement implies two acts of deep injustice.
It is an injustice to John, who, after having deserved and obtained credit by his honesty and activity, sees himself robbed of it. It is an injustice to the taxpayers who are made to pay a debt which is no concern of theirs. Will any one say that government offers the same facilities to John as it does to James? But as there is only one plough to be had, two cannot be lent. The argument always maintains that, thanks to the intervention of the state, more will be borrowed than there are things to be lent, for the plough represents here the bulk of available capitals. It is true, I have reduced the operation to the most simple expression of it, but if you submit the most complicated government institutions of credit to the same test, you will be convinced that they can have but one result, viz., to displace credit, not to augment it. In one country, and in a given time, there is only a certain amount of capital available, and all are employed. In guaranteeing the non-payers, the state may, indeed, increase the number of borrowers, and thus raise the rate of interest, always to the prejudice of the taxpayer, but it has no power to increase the number of lenders, and the importance of the total of the loans. There is one conclusion, however, which I would not for the world be suspected of drawing. I say that the law ought not to favor, artificially, the power of borrowing, but I do not say that it ought not to restrain them artificially. If, in our system of mortgage, or in any other, there be obstacles to the diffusion of the application of credit, let them be got rid of. Nothing can be better or more just than this. But this is all which is consistent with liberty, and it is all that any who are worthy of the name of reformers will ask. End of section 6 Recording by Katie Riley February 2010